1: Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Talking France. On the menu this week, we have a six-course meal full of varied dishes that will leave you full to the brim with knowledge of France. For starters, we've got bedbugs. Yep, it seems like nowhere in France is free from the bloodthirsty insects, whether it's trains, cinemas, or hospitals. We'll find out just how bad the infestations are. For a second course, we'll serve up what is possibly one of France's craziest crime stories and look at what it teaches us about France strict inheritance laws. Then we'll move on to a Brittany seaside town that's gone all British this week. For the main course, we'll look at how President Emmanuel Macron wants to turn France green. From new trains to heat pumps, we'll find out whether his measures are up to scratch and the political dangers involved. And for dessert, we'll look at how in a country with as many restaurants as France has, you can possibly make sure you're picking a good one featuring some handy tips from readers in rural France. And for a digestive, we'll look at some essential abbreviations you need to know if you're texting French people. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and at the table this week, I'll be joined by the local France's journalists, Jen Mansfield and Sam Bradpiece, as well as our politics expert, John Litchfield. Thanks for joining us again, Jen, Sam and John. Uh, we should say to regular listeners, Emma is away. We haven't actually seen her since the injury to French rugby star Antoine Dupont. Jen, I think she's been very badly affected by that. We are praying, like the rest of France, that both she and Antoine will be back in action next week. Jen, are you following the World Cup at all?
0: No, honestly, I have to say, I don't really know much about rugby. It's not huge in the US. I would say the extent of my knowledge is that Matt Damon movie from 2009. So, no, I'm sorry. Invictus,
1: I think it was called. Yeah, yeah. Let's move on then, Jen, to a subject you do know something about. Insects everyone's heard of bedbugs. Most of us will likely have seen them or even maybe been nibbled by them at some point, especially if you're in France. That's because reports are mounting of bedbugs infesting not just people's beds, but also cinemas and even SNCF trains. One headline on BFM TV this week read, cinemas, hospitals and trains, the worrying proliferation of bedbugs in France. Jen, how bad has this problem become?
0: It's become pretty bad. I mean, it seems like every week in France, bedbugs are discovered in a new place that you normally would not expect them. So the old school advice of check the hotel room and old furniture and rented apartments for bedbugs seems to be still true. But these days, they're popping up in places like movie theaters and even on SNCF trains, like you said. There have been several passengers posting images and videos of these creepy crawly bedbugs While on board SNCF trains in France, one happened on a train heading from Paris' Charles de Gaulle Airport to Lille, and then there was another on a train running between Paris and Marseille. And to be fair, SNCF, which is France's National Rail Service, responded to the tweets and said, to date, we have had no confirmed cases of bedbugs on our TGV, which is the fast trains, in recent months. This is a risk that we are particularly vigilant about and we take every report seriously and no risks are taken.
1: I think they're in denial, Jen. I've been looking at some of these social media videos that people, passengers have been uploading. But anyway, look, what about cinemas too?
0: Yeah, just a few weeks ago, there were several reports of bedbug infestations at the Paris UGC and MK2 cinema chains. The movie theaters actually did take responsibility, though, and they apologized. The UGC Cinema Group said that they had put their emergency procedures into place, which means using a canine detection service and high-temperature steam treatments to kill off the bugs. Almost more sad, there have been stories about hospitals' emergency departments having to temporarily close because of bed bug outbreaks. There was one in Boulogne-sur-Mer Hospital in northern France at the start of September, and then there was also one at Lyon's edouard Herriot Hospital earlier this year.
1: Okay, now, Jen, I've seen these bed bugs close up, when my neighbour got infested and she asked me to carry their mattress out onto the street. It was the worst sight, I think, since I saw someone eating the andouillette sausage, that typical French sausage that I think is made from pig's colon. Anyhow, let's move on. Why are we seeing more bed bugs these days, Jen? It seems that we have to look out for them everywhere.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's because they're getting... To be more common, one in six French households have had bedbugs, according to a recent report by ANSES. And between 2017 and 2022, bedbugs cost French households 1.4 billion euros. So it's definitely becoming a more common issue, but it's not a France-specific problem. It's been an ongoing trend really since the 90s. Basically, people are traveling more than they used to, and bedbugs themselves have become more resistant to chemicals that we used to rely on to get rid of them.
1: Okay, so finally, what are some of the ways people can avoid bedbugs in France?
0: Well, if you're going to the movies... I would just take out your phone before the film starts and use your flashlight and look around and just give a little check before you sit down. Try not to leave your bag open on a seat. Close it up and put it on the floor instead. And then for trains, it's safer to put your bags and your suitcase on the wooden luggage rack rather than on the carpeted floor, the fabric covered seat next to you. In general, it's basically just avoid putting your suitcase or your clothes onto fabric surfaces. For example, if you're staying in a hotel room, you might consider putting your suitcase in the bathtub or the bathroom rather than inside the hotel room itself because that's an area where there's less fabric. So it's a bit safer. I mean, personally, I'm, I've become really paranoid about this. So when I come home from a trip, I put my bag and my clothes that I wore on the trip through the dryer for at least 20 to 30 minutes just as a precaution. But yeah, we put together a really good article on the website with a bunch of tips for how you can avoid bed bugs. But if you are worried that you have them, you can look out for some of the telltale signs in your home. So those would be like brown stains on your sheets, bites, black specks in places that bedbugs might be hiding. So think like your mattress, headboard outlets, stuff like that.
1: Right. Thanks, Jen. Excellent advice there. That's enough of bedbugs, I think. Let's move on. When France is famous for art, for taxes and even its strict inheritance laws. All three have combined into what is an epic court case going on at the moment. It involves one of the world's most powerful art dynasties and multi generational tax fraud claims running into billions. Jen, you've had your eyes on this case. Just explain why it's causing such intrigue in France and indeed around the globe.
0: Yeah, so it's about the Wildenstein family, and more specifically, the main patriarch Guy Wildenstein. They are accused of running what a French state prosecutor in 2016 called the longest and most sophisticated tax fraud in modern French history. So the Wildensteins in France are pretty well known. French media sometimes just called them les W, les W. They're a family of French-American art collectors, and they've been doing this for over five generations, so 150 years. Now, this is the third time that French prosecutors have gone after the Wildensteins. They're currently at the center of an ongoing trial in Paris that could determine once and for all whether or not they owe approximately $1 billion in back taxes and fines to the French government for having allegedly stashed millions of euros of inheritance money out of reach of French tax authorities for years. The theory is that the Wildensteins have managed to avoid French inheritance tax over generations by keeping their assets in foreign trusts. And when I say assets, I mean thousands of works from old masters to Impressionists, think Cézanne, Renoir, Manet, Monet, the works. And then the art has been stashed away. So the family has stored their art in these wild places. So like a nuclear bunker in in New York state and a former fire station. And then also these prison-like security vaults and storage facilities. And most of those are located in Freeport, So that means they're completely independent of national jurisdiction. So people can just leave their property there without paying any tax. Based on some estimates, one of the storage facilities the family used in Geneva could actually contain more art than the Louvre.
1: Wow. And I know this case against the Wildensteins, like you said, it's been going on for a long time. We've got articles on our site from many years ago. How did it all come to light, Jen? Jen?
0: Yeah, things started to unravel in the early 2000s when the widow of the former Wildenstein patriarch suspected that she'd been cheated out of her inheritance by her stepsons. And basically this launched a years-long legal battle that it's been going on for over two decades now. And it's led to some new tax laws in France that actually might affect you if you're a reader or a listener of the local.
1: Okay, so this is where it kind of gets interesting for us. Tell me more about these laws, Jen.
0: Previously, trusts, which is what the Wildensteins have used to hold their foreign assets, were not recognized by French tax law because they're a foreign structure that are mostly used in Anglophone countries. But in 2011, France passed the Wildenstein Law, which basically made it so that any French resident has to declare the existence of any trust that they're named in. When it comes to our American readers, this might be a bit of a surprise. In the U.S., trusts are a really common way to handle inheritance. People often see trusts as just a quicker and more efficient option to wills, and they skip the probate process. But now, thanks to the Wildenstein Law, if you're an American living in France and someone you love dies and leaves you some assets in a trust, those assets are taxable at very high rates from French fiscal authorities, even if that person and that trust is outside of France. And if you happen to be named a beneficiary of a trust and you fail to report it to the French taxman and and you're a French resident, then you can wind up with a giant fine of 20,000 euros. So they take this stuff pretty seriously. Now, trusts are a pretty complicated topic. If you're panicking, don't worry. We've got a really in-depth article on our website. But this case is super interesting because the basis of it is French inheritance tax and law, which is notoriously tricky.
1: Mm, uh, We all remember the Johnny Halliday case, of course, the French rock singer, which centered on children and inheritance. Remind us of the strict laws around children and inheritance in France, Jen.
0: Yeah. So in France, it's really hard or borderline impossible to disinherit your children because they're considered héritiers réservateurs. So that means they cannot be cut out of your will. When Johnny Holiday tried to bypass this and he wanted to skip out giving inheritance to his two oldest children and leave everything to his latest wife, the kids took him to court. And eventually, French courts did agree that they had jurisdiction because Holiday was French. Now, that situation is a little bit different than it would be for us normal people, uh, than it was for a rock star. But the same general rule applies. French law doesn't want you to disinherit your kids. And you can thank Napoleon for that because the rule actually goes back to the early 1800s.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: In fact, French law actually requires that kids get a specific minimum amount of your estate. So if you have just one kid, then they should get at least half of the estate. And then that goes up based on the number of kids. So if you've got more than three kids, then altogether they get three quarters of your estate. Now, people like you and me, Ben, foreigners that are living in France, we get a little bit of a pass thanks to the EU. Basically, because of the fact that we're foreigners, we can add a clause to our will stating that we want our inheritance to be distributed based on our home country's laws. So if you really want to disinherit your kids and you're a foreign resident of France, you technically can do that by adding the clause in. Though if you don't add the clause in, then French inheritance laws will apply. Now, I must say all this estate planning stuff is super complicated. And of course, there are loopholes that exist. I spent the last two weeks writing up a series of articles about French inheritance tax and law, which are on the site if you're curious. And basically what I learned is that if you want to do anything that isn't in line with how France already does it, then you should probably talk to a lawyer and a tax specialist.
1: Get some specialist advice. Yeah, fair enough, Jen. Thanks for all that info on inheritance tax and the crazy court case that's ongoing. We'll have updates on that on our website. Now, one seaside town in France has become very British for the next few days. It's the Brittany resort of Dinar, which stands on the north coast. And in the words of the organisers, has become the capital of British film for a few days. That's because the annual Festival du Film Britannique is taking place in Dinar. I'm going to bring in journalist Sam Bradpeace now to tell us exactly why Dinar has a British film
3: festival. Well, Ben, the festival was first set up in 1989 by a local cinephile called Thierry de La Fournier. He said that the town of Dina, um, which is nestled on that coastline of Brittany, needed waking up. It's a small sleepy seaside town uh, opposite the more famous Saint-Malo, uh, which is on the other side of the bay. Now Fournier knew that he wanted to do some kind of film festival, and he said that making it a British film festival in particular just made sense to him, given the British influence in the area. In the 19th century, uh, Ben, remember Dina was a historical kind of major destination for aristocratic Brits uh, during the summer holidays. And you can see the legacy in Dina even today, uh, if you look at all the Victorian style villas dotted around the town. Back then, these kind of wealthy tourists were attracted by the beautiful beaches, jaw-dropping cliffs and calm climate. And a lot of tourism since then, of course, has moved further south.
0: Mm, it
1: is a beautiful part of the northern Brittany coast uh, around Dinar and, uh, and indeed Saint Malo. Sam, what happens at this festival? What can we expect? Well, the festival itself runs from
3: September 27th to October 1st. Visitors can attend screenings, they get to vote in some of the prize categories. In fact, the number one prize at this festival is known as the Hitchcock Door, or the Golden Hitchcock, uh, which is of course a nod to the famous British director Alfred Hitchcock. The emphasis of the festival is really on independent and original films, and often for British filmmakers, this festival is really seen as a stepping stone to get into the European film market. The festival really has grown in size alongside the growth of the British film industry. which is now far more developed than it was in the late 80s and early 90s when the festival first really took off. Tens of thousands of people attend every year and the viewings are reasonably cheap, some tickets then going for as little as 5 euros. There are also free guided visits of the town, which really does look quite beautiful, and the chance to rub shoulders with celebrities. In previous editions of the festivals, figures like Daniel Craig, Hugh Grant, Monica Bellucci, Catherine Deneuve, Even Eric Cantona have visited the festival. And all of this has helped raise the profile of the event, which is now taken pretty seriously in European cinema circuits. Okay, really interesting.
1: Um, Now, look, Sam, Brittany, of course, where this festival, the region where this festival is being held historically and even today has been an important region for Brits, uh, as well as the Irish and the Welsh for that matter, too. Just explain a bit more about the historical links here. You're absolutely
3: right, Ben. I mean, there's a really long historical connection between Brittany and the British Isles, going back at least almost 2000 years, when many native Britons from what is now England and Wales fled an invasion from the Anglo Saxons. In fact, the Breton language is very closely related to Welsh and Cornish. And up until just a few generations ago, Welsh speakers and Breton speakers were able to converse with each other reasonably fluently. Now, for a significant chunk of the Middle Ages, Brittany essentially fell under British control. Today, there's still a significant British presence in Brittany. There are more than 11,000 Brits living in the region in total. More than 4,000 live in the Côte d'Amour, about 3,500 in Morbihan more than 2,000 in Finisterre, and about 1,600 in Île-et-Vilaine, and that's the département which is actually home to Dinard. There's estimated to be thousands more British nationals who have second homes across Brittany. The region is connected to the UK by regular ferries running from places like Portsmouth and Plymouth to Roscoff and Saint-Malo on the French side.
1: Yeah, indeed. I mean, it's still a huge uh, summer holiday destination for people from, from Britain and Ireland. Sam, just finally, the Dinar Film Festival isn't the only festival celebrating British or Celtic culture in Brittany. It's far from the only one. There is also,
3: for example, the famous Route du Rock Festival, uh, which has been running in the town of Saint Malo every year since 1991 and that really focuses on British and American rock and pop bands. Even the likes of Radiohead have played there. And I'm glad you mentioned Celtic culture too, because Brittany has also historically had a very strong Celtic identity, which of course ties it to some degree to Ireland. Lots of Irish and Welsh visitors come to visit the Festival Interceltique de Lorient every August, which is essentially
1: a big celebration of Celtic culture and tradition. Thanks to Sam, and we'll hear more from him later. This week, French President Emmanuel Macron finally laid out his climate plan. In other words, his vision for how France will go green in the near future in order to cut emissions and end reliance on fossil fuels. It's a subject riddled with political dangers, as our French politics expert John Litchfield will spell out for us shortly. But Jen, first of all, tell us what was in this plan.
0: So there were 50 different measures in this plan, so I'm gonna just stick to the highlights. The plans included increasing offshore wind farms and upping the budget for energy renovation projects. So specifically by giving more funding for installing heat pumps, which use a lot less electricity than other alternatives. I learned about this in a YouTube video. Basically, heat pumps don't generate cold or warm air. They just move the existing air to either heat or cool your home. And France would produce 1 million of these devices and train 30,000 people to be able to install them by 2027, according to Macron. Macron also confirmed that France will finally shut down two of its remaining coal-fired plants by 2027. But mining is not set to end. He said that he wants to invest in projects to explore France's soil for cobalt and lithium, which could be used in battery making. And on top of that, he said he wants to plant a billion trees by 2032.
1: Not himself. <laughs> no. Surely impossible.
0: No, I don't think Macron's going to go out into the forest himself. <laughs> oh. uh, he also said that France will hit the target of producing at least 1 million electric cars by 2027. And he said that the government would spend 700 million euros to create 13 more suburban train lines, like the RER in Paris, if you're familiar, around other French cities, basically to encourage people to switch from driving in cars in order to lower emissions and take public transport.
1: Okay, thanks, Jen. Now, notably, there were a few measures that weren't in Macron's climate plan that environmentalists have been calling for. For example, no higher taxes on flying, no reduction in motorway speed limits. No bans on gas boilers, perhaps because the president is aware of the risks. And to discuss those dangers and Macron's predicament, let's bring in our French politics expert, John Litchfield, who joins us, as usual, on the line from Normandy. John, first of all, what did you make of Macron's plan?
2: Well, it depends what you compare it to, Ben. Really, if you compare it to the confusion and, and changes of direction we are seeing in the UK at the moment, and a lot of political wrangling also in the Netherlands and Germany, it could be said to be a rather clear and courageous statement. But this this is a, this has been delayed several times, and it had been. Bill for months and during the election campaign last year as a sort of very stark statement of things that had to be done and needed to jolt public opinion and realise just how serious climate change was as a threat to the way we live. And it wasn't really that either, you know, it was courageous in some ways, but also somewhat cautious and vague in other things and left things out that perhaps had been expected to be there. So uh, it was difficult to say, it was macronish in a way, you know, it was trying to sort of make a centre line, which is not going to necessarily satisfy anyone. Did anything stand out for you, John, any of the measures? what was interesting was the way he tried to spin it as a positive thing, you know this is not, you know, a terrible thing, this is not something we all need to sort of be aware of, be scared of it's it's dangerous, a threat, but it's also an opportunity for France, France is not a country which has any fossil fuels and therefore we France are importing huge amounts if we go into a future which is less fossil fuel uh, dependent, that's in many many ways good for France, and good for the the economy, and he said that France could rebuild its industry by on electric cars, a million electric cars in the next year, batteries, and also uh, heat pumps. So he was trying to suggest that this is not, you know, something to be scared of or something, something to be gloomy about. There are things here which can be done positively. And I think he, he's right about that. I mean, he, it's good for the ecological argument but also the political argument mm. to try and suggest that this is something we have to do, but it's something that can be done creatively. It doesn't always have to be done destructively. Mm.
1: Well, let me ask you about the political uh, angle here, Johnny. In your column this week, you've highlighted the short term political dangers of Macron kind of demanding too much from French voters in this drive to go green, especially those in rural France. What are those dangers, John?
2: Well, you know, it's, what, five years since the gilets Jaunes movement began, and that began with a relatively modest plan to increase petrol pump prices, but also I think it was influenced by plans to reduce the speed on rural roads to 80 kilometres an hour. So I think, you know, Macron has to be aware of that. And it's clear, not just in France, that there's been a right-wing sort of lurch against climate change. I mean, there are sort of articles in in the right-wing press in Britain suggesting that the left has lost the battle on climate change as if somehow it was just a political argument not something real that's happening out there. And you see that in Germany, you see it in the Netherlands with the rise of... of, uh populist movements which are against the kinds of things that need to be done to combat climate change. And you see it here as well, the National, the Repsomnum national, I should say, is saying quite openly that they regard climate change or the green transition, as Macron calls it, as a big vote winner for them in the European elections next year and in the presidential election in 2027, maybe more so than immigration in, in the sense that it really annoys people who, who sort of regard it as something as imposed by the elites in Paris, something that is a way of interfering with the rural out suburban way of life that is not necessarily is exaggerated. Very much the same sort of argument you see in the Daily Mail or the Daily Express in Britain. It's incredible that it's become such a, a kind of
1: vote winner issue that, like you say, it just feels as though there shouldn't be an argument about it.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is what the Rassemblement National believes, but I think they need to come up themselves with a coherent answer to this sort of, you know, the fact that it's been such a sort of burning summer in Europe, literally a burning summer. I think, you know, facts may overwhelm that that argument by the time the 2027 election comes around. Their position on on climate change, as on many things, is utterly incoherent. So... Maybe that's, you know, as a threat, uh, or as a resolve national threat of, of vote accumulation, maybe it doesn't go that far. But Macron is certainly worried by it, clearly worried by it, and it was, there were things that were supposed to be in this plan, uh, including possibly going all speed limits on motorways down to 110 kilometers an hour, uh, taxes on aviation, banning new gas boilers for houses. All those things were sort of considered and would have been quite important to bring France towards its uh, climate change targets over the next 10 years. But they're all dropped out of the plan.
1: Thanks, John. Really interesting analysis as usual. And just a reminder to listeners, you can find John's latest column on the local.fr. Now, one project by the French government that has angered environmentalists in France has been the plan to build a new stretch of autoroute, the A69 motorway, to be precise, in southwestern France. I'm going to turn to Sam Bradpeace once again. Sam, before we get into the controversy of the A69 or the A69, just tell us about this new stretch of road. Where will it go to and from? So if this motorway, the A69, is completed, it will run 55
3: kilometres connecting the southwestern towns of Castres and Toulouse. These towns are already connected by a single lane road, but proponents of the plan say that the A69 could shave between 15 to 35 minutes from the journey time. There is also, I should point out, uh, already a train connecting these towns of Castres and Toulouse, but the journey actually takes longer than the current single lane road. Work on the A69 began back in March, but has since been mired
1: in controversy. Right. Okay. Let's get into that controversy, Sam. Who actually wants this motorway built and why? Well, the government sees the A69 and about
3: seven other greenlit road construction projects in France as a way to help connect isolated towns to the wider economy and public services. In an interview with RMC earlier this year, the Environment Minister Agnès Pannier-Runacher said, and I quote here, Ben, we must listen to the demands of the population on the questions of improving access. Lots of people in rural territories think we do not take care of them. They do not have the same access to public services. They cannot live as easily as people who live in Paris, for example. Local business leaders in Cast and Toulouse, as well as regional authorities in the area, have also backed the project as a way to boost economic growth by facilitating the creation of new businesses and, of course,
1: jobs. But clearly, there's been a lot of opposition too. It indeed has. We've seen uh, huge protests at the construction site of the new motorway. Sam, why are people
3: against it? To be honest with you, Ben, the main opposition to this project has come from environmentalists and scientists who are worried about the hundreds of trees that must be uprooted, the carbon emissions generated by increased road travel, and the fact that the money is being invested in roads rather than more sustainable travel infrastructure like railways. Scientists say the train route connecting Toulouse and Cast is responsible for about three times less CO2 emissions as the existing road, and that this could even become 25 times less if the trains were electrified. The most prominent opponent to the A69 is a guy called Thomas Bray. He's an activist who spent nearly a month on hunger strike, sitting at the top of a tree outside the Environment Ministry in protest. He, unfortunately, Ben was transferred to hospital over the weekend. Also over the weekend, 200 scientists based in Toulouse signed an open letter calling for a halt to the construction, saying it contradicted national commitments on climate change and biodiversity loss. There's another group opposed to the construction of the A69 as well, and these are the residents of Tula. This is a village of 530 people, which sits slap bang in the middle of the new motorway route, which if completed, would cut it in half.
1: Hmm, okay, I mean, that sounds fair enough that they are opposed to it. Um, the arguments are mounting up against this plan. What happens next, Sam? Well, the French transport minister,
3: Clément Bon recently said we must push forward with the A69 construction, despite that pressure uh, from environmentalists. He conceded, though, that other road projects would be cancelled. In a recent interview, he told France Inter, and again, Ben, I quote, We will take courageous decisions to stop many projects because we need to be coherent when dealing with the ecological crisis we cannot do like before. We have already cut road construction in half and we will continue this effort, building more train lines and less roads. The battle over the A69 is not necessarily over yet, though. In recent years, public pressure has helped sink road construction projects like the A45, linking Lyon and Saint-Étienne, as well as the A147 between Limoges and Poitiers. Mm, Thanks, Sam.
1: And uh, listeners, if you're interested in more on the A69 road project in southwest France, you'll find the article on our website and in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks, Sam. France has no shortage of restaurants, as we all know. It's got some incredible ones. Indeed, there are 630 restaurants boasting at least one Michelin star and probably hundreds more that don't but probably deserve one. But what if you're just out in Lyon, Paris or Bordeaux or even a smaller town and looking for somewhere decent to eat? How do you know how to pick a good restaurant? Before you even walk in, sit down and order. Jen, you got any tips for us?
0: I think the first tip, which is kind of obvious, is to avoid the crowded tourist areas. For example, if you're visiting Paris, maybe don't pick the first restaurant right next to the Eiffel Tower. Get off the beaten path a little. Go follow the locals where they go. If you're on a road trip, you can actually plan to stop at a village étape along the way. These are the stopover villages that are recognized for offering a more traditional or authentic French experience than the fast food chains that you'd find at service stations along the auto route.
1: All right. Now, look. Lots of people say follow the locals. It feels a bit easy to say that. You know, for example, with kids, we often get to a restaurant really early to to get them, you know, get them dinner early. And there's never any locals around. They're still at home probably or, or at work. Any more specific advice?
0: Well, instead of maybe follow the locals, you could say follow the older French people. Okay. <laughs> I like to walk around and I see which restaurants are busy at French dinner time too. So not 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. for the Americans out mm. there. It's more like 8 p.m.
1: And it's true that if you do get a chance, I think it's definitely worth asking a local. You know, people have said, in the, if you're staying in a hotel, ask the concierge. Or if you get a chance to talk to someone in a shop, Jen, always worth popping the question, where's a good place to eat?
0: Yeah, and there's another tip that I think is useful. And it's if the restaurant has a really long menu, that could be a sign that they're not super specialized. So it can help to look for places that have shorter menus. And it's also good to have just a general knowledge of French regional cuisine. So let's say you're on holiday in Brittany. I would say go for crepe instead of boeuf bourguignon. That Good probably advice. would be tastier in Burgundy. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there are plenty of like ratings, labels and guides.
1: Uh, we should mention the Internet. No, Jen, I mean, look, I kind of cheat. I use Google reviews and the ratings that restaurants get on Google are kind of like anything below four I avoid.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair, but sometimes there are hole in the wall places that might mm. not be on Google. Well, OK, so if you want a fine dining experience, for example, you should probably check out the guides like Gault et Milot, I hope I pronounced that right, and the Michelin Guide. These are the types of restaurants, though, you'd obviously have to reserve well in advance. But my favorite is to buy a Routard. That is basically the French Lonely Planet travel guide. They update them every year. If you know you're going to be in a specific place, I would just get one for that area. So you could get one for Bordeaux, for Paris, even for a region. And they have really great up-to-date lists of restaurant options. And they give different price ranges. So Mm. you could choose something on the more affordable side as well.
1: Yeah, we asked this question to our readers on our Facebook page, actually, Jen. And one or two of them mentioned the Routard guides as being good. What I realized is that many of these readers were in rural France and they had some decent tips that... Actually, we might not have mentioned one was look out for the number of white vans in a car park outside the restaurant. Obviously, that's impossible in big cities like Paris. You don't see white vans outside restaurants. There's nowhere to park, of course. But they said that was a good sign that locals like it. And they said even like spot the EDF vans, the number of guys who are working there. And, you know, it's a sign of a good restaurant. Basically, there's lots of parked cars out the front. One of them said follow old French ladies. Now, this seems a bit fraught with risk uh, in case those (laughs) ladies are just heading home for the night. You might end up in a cell rather than a restaurant, but we get where they're coming from. It's, you know, look where the locals are going. One reader, Tom, said uh, suggested the Michelin app is surprisingly useful as is the Fork app, especially if you don't know the area. And a lot of commentators actually swore by the presence of a chalkboard out at the front of the restaurant, which might display, you know, the dish of the day or the menu of the day as a surefire sign that this is a decent place to eat. Interesting theory, that one. Brilliant. Thanks, Jen. And to our readers who contributed to the Facebook post, uh, some great advice there if you're looking for a good restaurant in France. There are basically loads and loads of them. Jen, it's time for some language tips for our listeners. This week, we're looking at text speak. So if you're ever in a text conversation with a French person, as happens a lot, or emails perhaps, you'll need to know some common text abbreviations so you can use them and also know what the other person is writing to you. Jen, I'll do this in a quiz format for you. Should I, I know you know I like to put you on the spot. I've picked out some abbreviations that I often get in text from French people. Should we start with STP? What does that stand for?
0: Stop, the play, Sils please. te
1: play, okay, please or SVP if it's civil play. What about MDR, Jen?
0: Ah, that's a good one. Morderir. It's like the French version of LOL.
1: Right, morderir, yeah, LOL. Okay, and what about if you see a capital A with a plus sign next to it?
0: I actually don't know. Is that just attention?
1: No, a plus.
0: A plus. You ah. know, see you later. Basically. Oh, that's good.
1: A plus, yeah. What about DSL? Sounds uh. like a delivery firm, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> Désolé, sorry.
1: Désolé, yeah. And finally, Jen. Uh, JTM.
0: Uh okay I actually don't know this. Come on. Uh
1: you won't really get it used and probably only with one person maybe more. JTM,
0: I love je t'aime. you. Yeah, I love uh, you. Ah yeah.
1: There you go. Uh, yeah, so look, there's loads of common abbreviations that you can use in text Speaks. We do have an article that I'll include in the uh, show notes that will fill you in on many more abbreviations to help you texting French people. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Talking France. Thanks for Jen. Thanks to Sam and John, of course, for being with us. And we'll be back with more Talking Points from France next week.